0: With Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, my name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined as always by fellow co-host, Joel Wolfon. How's it going, man? Things going well, as well as they can, given, you know, the same circumstances we've been under for the last, what, six weeks now, seven weeks, five weeks, I don't know.
1: I think today actually marks exactly six weeks
0: for me. Uh, That makes sense, yes, we both started working from home on a Friday. Still no live basketball, and still no live basketball in sight but kind of a, re- a return of basketball in the form of a 22 years in the making documentary of course i'm talking about the last dance so later in the show and not too much later we're going to get to our all defensive team picks but until then is there anything about the last dance that you want to talk about um, anything that stood out <laughs> to you anything you you think is worth Discussing on a podcast that's usually meant for basketball happening today. Uh, I mean,
1: I don't know if there's anything to say that hasn't already been said. I've really, like, this documentary and just those 90s Bulls teams in general have really come to dominate the kind of basketball media discourse. I don't have, like, anything too profound to add. Like, I know you have read the Jordan Rules, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I haven't read that one, but I read Playing for Keeps, which is the Halberstam book about this same season. Um, So for me, it wasn't particularly revelatory, but it's really cool to see, first of all, just like the archival footage, like the old footage of Jordan is amazing. And I kind of feel like my basketball fandom didn't really blossom until after he'd already retired. Like I kind of became interested in basketball during the Vince Carter era in Toronto, which basically immediately preceded Jordan's retirement. So the stuff that I've seen of Jordan was like tail end of his career stuff and seeing like the footage of him from early in his career when he was a lot leaner and extremely feathery in not in a negative way, but like the way that he just sort of floated and bounced and levitated around the court, pretty incredible. And just seeing like extended highlights of him from the eighties that I found really cool. Obviously just cool seeing um, like all of them in the present day, reflecting on that season and on, uh, you know, the whole uh, bulls run, I think just kind of like refreshing mine and everybody else's memory about something that I don't want to say had faded, but I mean, something like this obviously brings it to the forefront of the public consciousness in, in a way that those Bulls teams hadn't been in a very long time. And I think just given the amount of attention and focus that is that is on this documentary with, like you said, no other live sports going on, has obviously reignited uh, a lot of conversation and debate about, you know... <laughs> Obviously, you know, those Bulls teams, whether or not they're the greatest team of all time, whether Michael Jordan's the greatest player of all time, why it fell apart and who was to blame, you know, how much longer they could have, they could have gone on if they hadn't been broken up. It gives you a lot, I think, to think about during these sort of trying times.
0: Yeah. And I think like the second peak for me is where I really became a young Jordan Stan, I guess, at the time. And even the 97, 98 season, like I don't think there's going to be anything in there even though it's called The Last Dance and it's about that very specific season. I don't think there's going to be anything in there that really like blows me away or I didn't hear at some point, reads at some point. But I did find the the early stuff fascinating. And some of that stuff, I did find a little eye-opening or maybe, you know, something I didn't know before. Like even that note, I think it was in episode one, about how before MJ arrived, bowls were being outdrawn by like the local indoor soccer team. And it kind of like really puts into perspective how much of a joke that franchise essentially was before Jordan arrived. Even some of the, we knew it was a big man's game, obviously, at at that point in in that era, but still to hear even Rod Thorne, who drafted Jordan, the National Player of the Year, in the introductory press conference, say something like, well, we wish he was 7-1 or something like that. Dude, you just drafted Michael Jordan. But at the time, you know, I went through it for that takeaways post I did after episodes one and two, I think at the time. Even though Larry Bird was a reigning MVP and he was a small forward, it was only like the fourth time in 29 years that a non-center had won MVP. No guard had won MVP when Jordan was drafted since Oscar Robertson. So like, it's kind of cool to go back and, and watch these clips from the, like the mid 80s. And it's easy for us to laugh watching these comments about Jordan. But then it's like, man, you know, at the time, it probably did seem absolutely absurd that some six six guard was going to come in and resurrect a franchise and carry them to the promised land.
1: Yeah, I mean, what would be the modern equivalent of that? Like is there a player type or just sort of like a popular conception about like what can and can't win in the NBA today that you can conceive of being altered or shattered like by a particular player? Like what is what does that conception look like today? Is it that you can't win if
0: you have an undersized point guard as your best player or you know what, I almost think it would be the opposite of of what it was 35 years ago I, I wonder if it if it's kind of like an old school low post big man
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah you know, no, like, I mean you,
1: you might be right about that I mean maybe um, like who's the guy who can change that Embiid maybe yeah
0: probably Joel Embiid yeah I'd say it was be Joel Embiid imagine like a dominant low post big man coming out of college right now can't shoot threes not very defensively versatile like d- it doesn't seem to fit where the game has gone right and and i'm sure we like those guys in the mid-80s that are in that doc would be saying no like this is a garbage league or it's you know it, 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 this guy just doesn't fit there's no way he's coming in and saving a franchise and then like 35 years from now we're on the that version of the last dance because people are like who are these clowns like
1: well do you think that that can happen without them changing the rules because i feel like so much of the direction the game did go and the reason that those sort of back to the basket big men got phased out was because of those mid-2000s rule changes that legalized zone defense and got rid of hand checking and made it just generally a lot more difficult i think to beat speed and shooting with like size and physicality I wonder if there wouldn't have to be some sort of a similar rule change that would tilt the balance back toward the big men. Or, you know, I guess you would just have to have somebody who was so dominant. And I I do think Embiid is like the closest that we have to that type of player right now in order to shift the paradigm back. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, it's tough to envision right now, I just think, with the way that the game is played.
0: The other thing I thought was pretty funny too, because Episodes 1 and 2 aired only a couple days after Jalen Green and I think it was Isaiah Todd. Those are the two names that, you know, joined the G League Select program instead of going to the NCAA route. And, And then it's funny, you watch The Last Dance and it's like such a different world. Michael Jordan has played three years of college. He's got a national championship winning shot under his belt. He's the national player of the year. He's a projected top three or four pick. And he had to be convinced to declare for the NBA draft. Uh, that was another one of those things that I I thought was just not necessarily anything we didn't know, but kind of funny, you know, given the current climate when it comes to NCAA basketball or the lack thereof needed before jumping to the NBA. And then you've got the greatest player of all time, you know, in his era wondering if he should come back from a fourth season that obviously was not needed.
1: Yeah. It's definitely the, you know, a a much different time. The paradigm has changed uh, in regards to that as well. And, you know, what, I don't know, what do you, what do you think it was at the time that was sort of driving that idea that players needed to spend a certain amount of time in college? Do you, do you have a sense of why that was the case?
0: I don't know if maybe it was that old school mentality of like, you know, this is a man's game. You gotta like, become like, I, I don't know, right. you know, it was maybe more of a more physical game. They thought they needed guys to be a little more like physically mature But maybe it was also just one of those things like, well, everyone else seems to have done that. So I guess that's just what you got to do. And it just took some people breaking the mold. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I
1: think, you know, one other takeaway that I came away with is the doc will get into this, I think, in episodes three and four, which are going to air this coming Sunday. But really, like, because it gets into like the Bad Boys Pistons stuff. And like, I think, you know, rivalries are such an important part of forging legacies And, and like a big part of the Jordan myth is that sort of mountain that he had to climb with specifically the Pistons in his way. And when it comes to kind of legacy and myth-making, like getting over that first hump and having that, that obstacle that drives you to be better, you know, that gives you that motivation um, and a mountain to climb. I feel like that's a really important part of that journey. And a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the Durant era warriors in conjunction with this and and kind of comparing those two teams. And I feel like that's maybe one thing that that Warriors team was missing. Like, I guess they had the Rockets as sort of a team that they ran into in the playoffs a couple years in a row and had hard-fought series with. But I'm struggling to think of, like, many especially memorable games that those teams played. Like, especially in 16-17, which I think a lot of people cite as the best version of the Warriors and maybe the most talented team ever, how many memorable games did that team play? Like, the one that sticks out in my mind, I guess, is that game three in the finals against the Cavs when Durant hit the shot over LeBron, and then like the game one against the Spurs when Zaza undercut Kawhi. But aside from that, like, I don't really remember anything about that season, aside from like opening night when the Spurs absolutely of them.
0: No, <laughs> it's you're right, man. It's true. And, and the, the narrative, like a story is definitely better when there is that hill to climb. And I kind of think that was part of the, I don't know if anger is the right word, but I think it was part of the frustration when KD first signed with the Warriors, right? It was that like, I, I think people knew, we all knew there wasn't going to be that hump they need to get over. No one was going to knock them down in that first year that they had to then come back and like, you know, avenge something. Right. Um, speaking of KD, by the way, I know a lot of people are uh, kind of going at Draymond for first he went at KD and now he's saying the Raptors wouldn't have won had KD been healthy. I just want to go on the record and say I actually love that Draymond is, is like this and that Draymond is Draymond because from a media perspective and an entertainment perspective, I think it's amazing. I think it's incredible that this unfiltered guy who was a pretty damn good player as well can be the same guy who gives us like two weeks of content two years ago because he or last year two years ago i don't know last year because he essentially told kevin durant to leave the team (laughs) because they don't need him and they won without him and less than a year later or whatever it is can also be the same guy a talking about how like distracting the whole kd thing was on the record but then also be the same guy and be like oh by the way if we had him we would have crushed the rap <laughs> like i get that it could be annoying but also it's like man don't don't want this guy to change
1: no i mean i always appreciate draymond's candor and his willingness to stir the pot like he really doesn't give a shit and i don't agree with everything he says like i don't he, he's been dumping on charles barkley a lot lately for some reason i don't know why those two people i mean you could probably trace the origin back somehow but I, I don't really remember what the origin of it was like the beef between those two guys but like draymond's been going at barkley saying whatever barkley put up nice stats but he never won a ring and i've won three rings and like i don't know man that's <laughs> this is sort of oh, like yeah. the rings culture argument that i can't really get behind but i don't mind that he's saying that stuff and i wholeheartedly believe that he believes what he's saying right and I do think it generally just, like, makes the discourse a little bit more fun and interesting when guys are willing to put themselves out there and and just say what they feel and consequences or backlash be damned. Like, I enjoy Draymond. Uh, I find him grating at times, but also, like, really entertaining at other times. To your point about the maybe, the, uh, you know, sort of intellectual inconsistency of him saying, like, we didn't need Durant, but also, like, you know, we definitely would have won the title if he'd been there. I think, you know, that's pretty much in keeping with with who he is and, and what he says. He doesn't always come from a place of, like, extremely thought-out, well-considered argument. I think he's an emotional person, and a lot of what he says comes from an emotional place.
0: Yeah. Okay, real quick, before we get to the all-defensive teams, I just had a couple more things from the last days. So, one, the Jerry Krause stuff. Uh, what I wanted to say is that, like, I get that... Again, if you kind of bring it to today and this exact same situation was unfolding, 100% we would be calling him the clown of the week or the clown of the first half season. Like whatever it is. Because the guy was tr- actively trying to break up, you know, arguably the greatest team ever constructed. And, and ironically enough that he constructed, which is all the more hilarious. But I also think people need to try to understand like context, or try to learn more about the period and what was going on and and just all that. because I've seen a lot of people like from our generation, even younger, you know, we talked about really only truly being able to enjoy and absorb like the second half of, of Jordan's career. Well, there's people younger than us that literally never watched Michael Jordan live and they're getting this, you know, first glimpse at the last dance, which is awesome. But I'll see like that generation, they're like tweeting or Instagramming about Jerry cross being a clown and like this, this fool that ruined it all. And I'm not even saying don't do that because the man, unfortunately, has passed away. I'm saying just take everything into context. Jerry Reinsdorf gets to be on camera passing the buck for all of that while Jerry Krause isn't here to defend himself. And it's like, yo, know, like there were many people to blame there. Again, Jerry Reinsdorf has a reputation for being a very cheap owner. As successful as the Bulls ended up being under Jerry Krause, we are reminded, if you didn't know already in the doc, that Jerry Reinsdorf hired Jerry Krause to run the Bulls when he was a freaking White Sox scout. There are a myriad of things you can go through as to why Reinsdorf is just as guilty, as to why other people in the Bulls, you know, didn't uh, handle business the right way. And while I completely agree that, you know, Krause's ego and maybe insecurity got in the way, and it probably didn't help that Jordan and Pippen constantly mocked him and his appearance, I also think just kind of like piling on this guy who's not here to defend himself as the one person that ruined everything, I think that's a little naive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated, you know, not just because of his death, but also because, yeah, he ultimately tore down the thing that he had helped build. I think you have to give him a lot of credit for building that dynasty in the first place. Like well, he was a
0: baseball scout.
1: Obviously, MJ is MJ, but like that draft day trade to get Pippen, like trading for Rodman, getting coach. and also, you know, seeing something in Phil Jackson, like scooping him out of the CBA and and making him an assistant coach, and then after you know Doug Collins coached the Bulls to the conference finals, they fired. Collins and and decided to promote Phil Jackson when he was entirely unproven. You know, his head, his only head coaching experience had been with uh, Albany.
0: But you know whose story that kind of sounds like?
1: Nick Nurse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. if you, Do you read Mark Stein's newsletter?
0: Not religiously every week, but um, like often enough.
1: So, yeah, one of his recent newsletters, he talked to Nick Nurse about Phil Jackson and about um, their sort of similar coaching journeys. And... I didn't know this, but Nurse apparently in the offseason before um, this uh, before last season, essentially went to Montana and spent like a weekend with Phil Jackson on like his ranch in Montana, uh, just like talking shop, essentially. And I thought it was really interesting. Definitely worth a read.
0: Oh, that, that does sound interesting.
1: But yeah, they definitely I think there is a lot of a lot of similarity and overlap there and I think there's something to this idea that these coaches that kind of bounce around and get all kind of different experience and get to be experimental when they're not really in the spotlight and try stuff out and figure out what works and be creative, you know, when they're coaching teams that maybe don't have a ton of talent on them. I feel like that's I don't know if that can become a model in any way, but um, you know, especially now with the the rising prominence of the G League, I feel like we might start to see a, a lot more coaches
0: that have taken unconventional paths to the NBA, and, and maybe as we should, right? And, and kind of having executives think outside the box and and not just hire the same retreads that have failed elsewhere.
1: Yeah, but anyway, so yeah, you you know, you were talking about Kraus, and I think like he was invested, kind of in Phil Jackson's vision, in Tex Winter and the Triangle offense. He was sort of pressing doug collins to adopt those principles and collins was kind of resistant to it which is why they ultimately decided to fire him and and put phil in charge and i think you know stuff like that uh he deserves a lot of credit for as well and it's kind of you look at it and it's like well his his willingness to be bold and make unpopular decisions and his eye for talent like all that stuff served him and the bulls very well um until it didn't
0: right well put. Um, okay, and then the last thing I want to mention, because I thought this was pretty hilarious. So obviously, I, I get it. Jordan ended up torching the Celtics in that series. The Celtics sw- swept them, had one of the best weeks of his basketball career. LL Cool J's I'm Bad over Jordan's legendary 63 point performance was two of the best minutes of television I've seen in a long time. But I think it's hilariously ironic that Jordan golfed with Danny Ainge in the middle of that series, okay? Because that is literally the exact kind of thing that a modern star would do. It's the exact kind of fraternizing and a modern star would do with a member of the opposition. And then all we'd hear about for two days after is how Jordan would have never done something like that. Like, could you imagine LeBron playing golf with like, I don't know, Paul George in the middle of Lakers Clippers or something this year? I feel like he would have been roasted. And I also feel like a lot of the roast would have been something along the lines like, well, Jordan would never. Like, are you kidding me? In the middle of a playoff series, you're playing the guy and you're out there riding around in a golf court with him, like shooting the shit. And again, I get that Jordan played his ass off and and was unbelievable in that series. But I still thought it was ironic because that was one I had never heard. I never realized that he golfed with Danny Ainge in the middle of that series. And I just think it's just funny how perceptions change. Yeah, and apparently like
1: him and Barkley, I don't know if they golf, but like they definitely – hung out, I think, during the 93 finals as well. And I don't know, there's, I guess, like, conflicting reports or ideas about, you know, whether Jordan was fraternizing or whether that was sort of lulling his opponents into a false sense of security. And obviously, like, anything that Jordan did, like, is going to be bound up in the mythology of Jordan. And somebody will find a way to make it about his killer instinct and say that he was doing it intentionally because looking back in retrospect, like... you can fit everything into your narrative or your idea uh, about what Jordan was, who he was, and and what he accomplished. Because, you know, we're looking back in his story, his NBA story, at least, is already written. In real time, I mean, maybe it's a little bit different. It's Maybe he did take flack for that at the time. Like Jordan, I think, you know, this is another thing, I guess, that the documentary kind of brought to light that maybe some people had forgotten. But like, He won a championship in his seventh season. And up to that point, like all these doubts about whether a team led by Jordan could win a championship. Like that's everybody goes through that until you actually do it. Those doubts are all always there. Um, And I think, you know, LeBron's taken a, a lot of flack for a lot of different things. But I think once his NBA story is written as well, and we're looking back, you know, maybe 10, 20 years after it's over. A lot of that stuff will soften and I think he'll basically just be looked at as a legend and, and a lot of the other negative stuff that he was dealing with is going to fade into the background.
0: All right. You ready to get to these all defensive teams? I just want to ask
1: you quickly before we start no. and you don't have to give anything away about the story that you're writing, but I, I feel like I need to ask you about what had to have been a career highlight for you when you got a chance to chop it up with Dirk Nowitzki yesterday.
0: <laughs> yeah. I got a phone call from Dirk Nowitzki yesterday. How about that? Um, yeah, so I, I won't give away anything about the story I'm working on and why i want I needed to get in touch with Dirk uh, among a few other really cool people, hopefully, if this story comes together the way I wanted to. but uh, yeah, definitely you know, one of the career highlights, and it was pretty surreal to have Dirk on the phone, and even you know, for the purpose of the story I'm writing. We were looking back at, at some old games, and to have Dirk on the phone, just kind of like someone I'm talking basketball with, and and him being like, "Oh yeah, that was that year. Oh, I gotta pull this up," and then pulling up literally like a basketball reference box score, cackling to himself about the performance in question or or things like that was uh, was pretty surreal, man. It uh, yeah, definitely one for my own personal record books.
1: I'm looking forward to reading the story, man. It sounds like uh, it was a great interview, and just knowing what you're actually writing about, I uh, I'm really chomping at the bit
0: to finally read it. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. It's one of those things where, like, there I, I go through some moments where I'm like, man, like, are people going to wonder why the hell I'm writing? But like, it. it are people going to be like what this is so random it's cool, but it's so random and like no one was asking for this but I, I feel like basketball addict, sports fanatic, media fanatic, I find the story and like the narrative and, and like what happened in this particular story pretty fascinating given everything that was happening around it and yeah I, I, I feel like basketball fans or even casual NBA fans will find the whole thing pretty interesting. Um, But I guess you're going to wait till it's done, until we figure it out. I
1: definitely think they will, and
0: especially now.
1: Like, I I really think, obviously, a lot of the stuff that we're working on is retrospective. And, you know, we're just talking about, like, this Bulls documentary that is the ultimate retrospective. But um, I I think definitely right now a lot of people are looking back because there is nothing to really hold our attention on the sporting stage in the present. And I think this is a really interesting moment in time that you're looking back on. So I definitely think there will be an appetite for it and that people will be excited to read it. Let's hope so. Thanks.
0: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All defensive teams? Let's do it. Did you want to have your bet first?
1: (laughs) Um... Yeah, I think uh, in lieu of having spirited debate over disagreements, since that doesn't seem to happen with us too often, I thought that maybe we should make things interesting by just having a bet uh, to see how much agreement and overlap we actually have. So I thought that maybe we should, off the top, just do like an over-under. I set it at seven and a half uh, for how many guys... How many of the ten all defensive spots we had in common? So, what Ooh. do you think? Are you taking the over or the under on
0: seven and a half? I feel like I'm going to take the over. Like I, on one hand, I want to take the under and then just sabotage it myself. <laughs> Be like, oh, what? You didn't have Gallo as an all defensive forward. Um, I I know that I can't do that in my heart of hearts. So I'm going to go with the over. I feel like we're going to end up hitting eight. Wow. Um, okay, I'll take the under then.
1: Just uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we can have some measure of disagreement here um but we'll we'll say that this doesn't have to be like if we disagree whether a guy's first team or second team i think we're just we're, we're just tallying up how many of the total 10 guys we have in common right right so uh so i'll take the under i feel like we might end up with six or seven but um okay. I, i'm hoping that we'll have enough disagreement that we won't get to eight
0: okay well lay it on me give me your first all defensive first team guard Uh, Ben Simmons and we are one for one (laughs) okay did you have him first team I did and I actually thought that I I thought we'd disagree here because I don't know why I thought you didn't value Ben Simmons defense as much as I did but I guess I was wrong
1: I just think like he can legit defend positions one through five and there are some guys you can say that about where it's More of a token thing where, like, they can theoretically defend every position, but they're not necessarily doing it at a high level at every spot. But I think Simmons really is. Like, he's just as capable on the perimeter as he is in the post. Um, He creates a ton of turnovers, led the league in steals this year, but he does that without gambling too recklessly. Um, He's positionally sound. He's a great help defender, and he's a great switch defender. And he allows the Sixers, I think, to play a lot of different styles. Um I just think he was terrific at that end of the floor this year. So, yeah, and I I mean, I guess I debated a little bit about whether to put him in the guard or the forward category cuz interesting. But but I think just given the lineups that he was playing in, he's probably spending more time guarding guards than he was guarding forwards.
0: Yeah, and I think um I think considering him a forward for these purposes really muddies things because there are there it's- are a handful of insanely elite defensive forwards man. yeah if you try to shoehorn ben simmons into that category you are left left with more tough decisions than we should be left with
1: i have so many snubs on here and especially in the forward category like we might need to spend more time talking about the snubs than just talking about the guys who made the team because all right well, it's absolutely we'll stacked
0: we will see okay i'll, I'll go next then okay um So, rounding out the two guards on the all-defensive first team, I had Marcus Smart.
1: Two for two, baby.
0: I know it's easy with guys like Smart to be like, well, it's just a reputation thing at this point. It's like, well, A, yes, he does have a reputation for being an elite defensive guard, and the reason for that is because he is an elite defensive guard. You know, it's very rare that on a great defensive team, the team's most valuable defensive piece is a guard. And look, I think... In Boston this year, I think Daniel Tice had an awesome defensive season and was a big part of their surprising defense. And, and, you know, Tatum and and some of their wings are obviously good defenders. But Marcus Smart is what makes this team go defensively. And he is so important to what they do. In this era, this golden era, really, of guard talent, if you don't have someone who can at least body those guards a little bit and, and make them work at least a bit, you know, you're probably in trouble. And Marcus Smart does that and then some. Marcus Smart makes their night hell. And to be honest, until I see this guy fall off a cliff or until two or three or four more extremely elite defensive guards come in the league and knock him off his perch, if Marcus Smart is healthy, I I don't see a time in the near future where he's not going to be on my all defensive list.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, versatility is another big thing with Smart and with the Celtics. Like they play a lot of different kinds of lineups. They play small a lot. And Smart, I feel like, is the key to unlocking those lineups in a lot of ways because they really can't stash him on anybody. He's such a good post defender. Like they've closed games this year with him guarding Giannis or Kristaps Porzingis. Um, So I think you know the ability to switch, which the, the Celtics absolutely love to do, is really enhanced by Smart's ability to guard just like all different kinds of players. And he's just so solid and so hard to move. Um, that, that he really allows that to work. And I, I again, like I think, you know, there are a lot of really capable defensive guards. Uh, this category is crowded as well. But um, I think just given, I think the Celtics defense really overachieved this year. And looking at how their front court kind of got gutted in the off season, I was expecting them to fall back at least toward the middle of the pack. And the fact that they finished, I think they were fourth when the season was suspended. Um, and there are a few reasons for that. Like Tatum was excellent defensively. Jalen Brown's a great defender. Uh, Daniel Tice, uh had a really underrated defensive season in the middle. But I think Smart is easily their best defender. And so I had to put him on the first team.
0: All right. Give me one of your two forwards.
1: I mean, I think we can just say both of them, right? Like Giannis and Anthony Davis. We yeah.
0: talked about yeah. them. We're four for four.
1: All right. <laughs> but like, yeah, it was a little suspense there, obviously. We, both, we, we talked about them essentially as what we felt like were uh, the top two. Defensive Player of the Year candidates. So, uh, And I think we spent enough time probably talking about them on the last pod that we don't have to go uh, into too much depth here with why they made our first team.
0: Yeah, exactly. We, we think they were the two best defensive players in the league. So it's kind of insane to not have them.
1: Yeah. And I would say if, if you really want to hear us talk about why these two guys made our all-defensive first team, uh, just maybe go back to last week's episode and and fast forward to the part where we talk about Defensive Player of the Year. And you'll hear a lengthy conversation about uh, what these guys did defensively.
0: First team, all defensive center. Okay, so I
1: initially had Brooke Lopez here. Okay. But I thought about it a little bit more. I dug into some numbers. And, you know, as I kind of moved forward and went deeper into this intellectual exercise, I wound up switching
0: him out for Rudy
1: Gobert.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I'm you, saying wow as if that's like that shocking. Where <laughs> hasn't won the last two Defensive Player right. of the Year awards? But okay, uh, so did you did you have either of those guys on? I, I, so we're technically six for six right now because well, unless you had Brook Lopez off completely because I I had Brook Lopez as my first team center.
1: Yeah, I I wound up bumping him to second team, but he's still on there. Um, okay, so we're
0: six for six, Joe. I mean, <laughs> We're 6 for 6 and you didn't you did not think we were going to hit 8. We should have put some money on this. Yeah,
1: it's not looking great for me right now. Um the reason I think that I wound up making the switch is I just I didn't think it was entirely fair to penalize Gobert for the the Jazz's slipping defense. And like I think he fell off a bit from his last couple of defensive player of the year seasons, but like he's still Rudy freaking Gobert. And he still has unbelievable numbers as a rim protector this year. He was still first in the league in defensive RPM. And I think like Brooke Lopez was unbelievable. Um, like 99.5 defensive rating with him on the floor. Uh, I think his timing on blocks and just general at rim contests might be the best in the league. Like he never ever leaves his feet too early. He doesn't need to cause he's, Freaking enormous, but like he never leaves his feet too early, and he never really contests too late either. Like his timing is just impeccable. Three point three blocks for thirty six minutes, forty six point nine percent defensive field goal percentage at the rim, which was fourth behind Giannis, uh, his twin brother Robin, and Ivica Zubac, if you can believe that. But Gobert also like ha- had great rim protecting numbers, and he was doing it on a much higher volume than Brooke Lopez was. And I think ultimately what it came down to for me was I feel like Lopez really has the luxury of playing in a very simplified role. He plays that role exceptionally well. And I don't mean to say that it's easy, but I think that if you put Gobert in that system with Giannis beside him, like he's going to be able to do just as good a job, if not a better job, um, in that context I think. I feel like ultimately he's asked to do a little bit more defensively for the Jazz than Lopez is asked to do for the Bucks.
0: I think that's fair. Um look, I you know, we talked about how Giannis and and Anthony Davis were our top 2 or at least the two we debated as defensive player of the year last week. I probably if I actually had a ballot would have Lopez and Gobert as my 3 and 4. Mm-hmm. So for me this was also kind of a no-brainer. You know, I know there were some tough snubs, but at the center position, I thought these two guys pretty much stood head and shoulders above the rest, and and I honestly don't disagree with much of what you're saying. I, I get that Gobert has a bit of a trickier role, but I, man, I just thought Brook Lopez was so insanely good this season defensively. His shooting tailed off a bit, and... You know, I hope that doesn't convince people that he was somehow less valuable to the Bucs because he took his defense to another level. And there were parts of this season where I legitimately wondered. I don't anymore, but I did legitimately wonder whether maybe he was actually their best defensive player this season and whether he might actually be the defensive player of the year favorite. Now, obviously, we ended up seeing enough from Giannis to know that wasn't the case. But the fact that he was even in that conversation, to me, tells you all you need to know.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was exceptional, but I just... I really want to harp on this point that, like, Giannis makes his job so much easier. 100%. And not just Giannis, but, like, there's a ton of defensive talent around him. And the Jazz have some other good defenders, but I don't think it's nearly on the same level. And, like, with Lopez, you know, part of this is the Bucks' scheme, but, like, he really doesn't have to switch very often, if at all because there are so many guys around him who can essentially like make up ground on the perimeter. And, and again, a lot of that has to do with how their, their scheme is structured, but with Gobert, I think he just like, he has to do a little bit more of that stuff and he has to paper over a lot of weaknesses elsewhere. And that's why like, you know, Lopez has a better defensive field goal percentage at the rim, but it's not that much better. And if you look at like the volume of contest Gobert is still contesting a lot more shots at the rim. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that you know the the Jazz made this decision essentially to let go of Derek Favors to downsize at the four, and they don't have the kind of perimeter defensive talent either that the Bucks have, which just leaves Gobert I think a little bit more vulnerable. And ultimately, you know Lopez's numbers might look a little bit better, but I think if you uh, you know apply the context here, then uh, it's still reasonable to give the edge to Gobert.
0: All right, so now that you told us why um, Brook Lopez shouldn't be on either of the two all defensive teams. Why don't you tell us who your real second team center was?
1: <laughs> no, I had Brooke Lopez,
0: my second team center. No, I I oh, you're just you're giving me shit. I see. I, yeah. Okay, let's um let's work backward from there and I'll go with uh my first second team forward now. OG Ananobi. Seven for seven, my guy. Yeah, there you go. One more and I win something. <laughs> I mean, I'll let you start
1: with this one, but uh, again, I, I think we're we're pretty well aligned on, on why OG belongs in this category.
0: I mentioned a few minutes ago how tough you know it was to omit some guys from the, from the forward crop especially because that's where the most elite defenders lie right now, I think, and yet it was a no-brainer for me that OG Ananobi should be one of those four because he was that good. He was insanely good defending oftentimes the opposing team's, best offensive threat and I know we talk and write a lot about how creative the Raptors are defensively how creative Nick Nurse is and they've got defensive problem solvers up and down that roster no doubt but there is still no replacement and honestly almost no way to truly value how important it is and how irreplaceable it is to no matter how creative defensively you are whatever no matter how many other guys you have to have a guy on your team at OG Ananobi's size who you can at any point, say, you know what? Let's just play this straight up. Hey, OG, go guard Kawhi Leonard. Hey, OG, go guard James Harden, who plays a very different style than Kawhi Leonard and it is a very different kind of assignment. Hey, OG, go guard this center because we're going to play without a big man today. Um, you, you remember OG guarding, I don't remember if it was Sabonis or Miles Turner in in one of those Pacers games. He guarded Carl Anthony Towns, I believe, for stretches of that game where Ronde Hollis Jefferson also got a crack of it, if I'm not mistaken. So OG Ananobi is both the type of forward, the defensive forward you can put on, you know, the Kawhis of the world, but he's also versatile enough, good enough, and smart enough defensively that you can put him on James Harden and you can put him on a center. And he does an elite job defending all of them. Yeah, I I just think there is there's no way to assign a value to that, but there is a way you can honor it, and it's by putting him on the all-defensive team. And I will hear no arguments against that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely it's easy to focus on on his physical tool set. Uh, he's, he's massive. He's super strong. But he's also just got great balance and great footwork. Like, he's really good at kind of mirroring the movements of the offensive player that he's guarding, staying on his feet, Um, I think he's easily the best one-on-one defender on the Raptors. Like they have a ton of incredible team defenders. And I don't know if I would say that he's like the best team defender, the best help defender on the team, but um, I agree with everything you said. And I was actually like, I was literally just on the locked on Raptors podcast with Sean Woodley talking about this very thing. Um, But to your point about, you know, the Raptors get credit and Nick Nurse gets credit for their, you know, really creative defensive schemes um, and that involves a lot of zone and it involves blitzes and rotations and full court presses that require like everybody on the team to be on a string. What, like anytime they kind of drilled down and wanted to play it straight up one-on-one OG is the guy they would turn to, to guard the opposing team's best player. Um, and that could be a point guard or a small forward or a center, like whoever it happens to be, he has been up to the task and um I mean, his hands, I feel like, just got so much better, right? Like, it's not just about him, like, bodying guys and staying in front of them, but, like, he was ripping a ton of steals this year uh, and creating fast-break opportunities the other way. He, He just became an absolute menace defending the ball, applying pressure, you know, being physical, but also defending, I think, without fouling. And like I was saying with Ben Simmons, I think, you know, the ability to guard one through five and to do it essentially at a high level at every one of those positions... Is extremely rare, and uh, and I think OG did that this year, and he was really key to unlocking the Raps' full defensive potential. Did he
0: not have like a seven steal game this year?
1: He did. It was that game against Denver, uh, when when the Raps were playing without a center, essentially like Gasol and Ibaka were both injured, and OG I think was the only guy who was really able to give Jokic any kind of trouble. I think he wound up with seven steals in that game, and he also wound up with thirty two points. Yeah, and I think like twelve of those 30 points, 30 points were just from were just from pick sixes, like steals that he yeah. took the other way for dunks.
0: You know, shooting the gap can be defensively compromising, but he's a master of shooting the gap intelligently, and like you said, coming up with a pick six.
1: Yeah, his yeah, instincts, the, his instincts are just
0: incredible. Yeah, that that seven steal performance, by the way, came the day after a six steal performance, <laughs> or two days after. Sorry, but in back to back games. Yeah, so that's uh, that tells you all you know. okay. Give me give me your second, second team forward. PJ Tucker. Okay. We disagree. We have our first disagreement. I mean, I
1: figured, so Kawhi was the guy, I think it was really tough to leave off for me here. And there were a bunch of other guys who, you know, we can get to when I talk about snubs, but am I safe to assume that Kawhi was your, your second, second forward? Yeah. Yeah. and And I think with Tucker, this is probably my only like purely sentimental pick. Not that he wasn't incredible, but like I think, you know, you could probably argue that Kawhi was still better than him. I just, for one thing, I think it's a crime that this guy has never made an all-defensive team. Um, But for another thing, I thought he was as outstanding as ever this year, especially given what the Rockets were asking of him and the fact that none of it, you know, not the downsizing, not the switching scheme, um, you know, not the ability to stretch teams out and play any style. None of that works without him. And... You know, the fact that on command he can essentially, you know, pick up a wing player and do an incredible job blanketing them one on one on the perimeter. Or he can go in and do the dirty work, guarding in the post, boxing out, rebounding. Like obviously, you know, the rebounding was a big issue when they went totally small, but like (laughs) Tucker's about as good a rebounder for his size as you could possibly ask for. And so I just think like the extent of his versatility and you know, the way that he was just like such a good soldier about guarding all size players. Uh, And being up to the task, I just, I felt like he, he needed to be rewarded. And, and given
0: like the the Rockets, I don't
1: think have a ton of defensive talent elsewhere. So the fact that they finished, I think they finished 16th or maybe 17th in defensive efficiency, which doesn't seem like much, but if you look up and down the roster and you look at the, like the way that they are playing. I think that Tucker still deserves a ton of credit for getting them to the point that they're a league average defense. I agree
0: with you that it's batshit crazy that he has never made an all-defensive team. And I think he is one of the 10 best defensive players in the league, hands down. The problem is I don't think he was one of the four best defensive forwards this yeah. year. Yeah. It's and fair. that's kind of where the technicalities mess with this whole process. But look, I just think, you know, had Kawhi played less than he already did, then it would have been easier for me to leave him off. He still played 51 out of, what, 64 games, like something like that. He was still on pace to play basically 60 games again, three quarters of the season. And when he played, to me, I I, I know there's been some defensive drop-offs since his absolute peak, but it still leaves you with a player that I believe is one of the four best defensive forwards in the league and was this season. And a lot of the stuff we kind of mentioned with OG applies to Kawhi, but... On an even more cerebral level, I think. And he's still stronger than OG. I can take on those same assignments. And yeah, I just think the guy is a defensive genius who's also been blessed with some of the rarest defensive abilities I've ever seen and maybe ever will see. And and I think as long as he plays enough at still the level he was playing at this year, I, I just c- can't talk myself into not having him on an all-defensive team.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. He made all defensive second team last year, and I think he was considerably better defensively this year. Agreed. I I didn't necessarily think that he deserved to make second team last year, but the fact is, like, if he got voted in for last season, I I don't see any way that he's not going to get voted in this year as well. Um, But I just, I felt like I needed to give Tucker that love. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily debating that Kawhi is a better defensive player than Tucker is, and maybe even that he was a better defensive player on balance this season, but I just think he wasn't really asked to do what Tucker was asked to do. Like, the burden on Tucker's shoulders was greater, and I think he handled it with aplomb, and so I thought he deserved to be
0: recognized for that. So. A little bit of a lifetime achievement, like you—you you think he's deserving, but it, uh, there's a hint of lifetime achievement in there. Yeah, a hint, a, a slight hint. But I—I
1: I, I think, I actually think that like the the margins between him and Kawhi and what they did this year, especially given that Tucker uh, played in more games and you know, like I said, was was asked to carry a little bit more responsibility. I think the margins were slim enough that I'm fine with that being a tiebreaker.
0: That's fair. All right, give me we, – we're down to two guards. That's all we've got left. We're seven of eight so far in terms of matching. Yeah. Who's your first second team guard? Eric Bledsoe. Okay. So, yeah, we maybe we won't hit eight. Wow. Um, okay, so you didn't have Bledsoe. Interesting. Why not? I don't think he was one of the four best defensive guards in the league this year. <laughs> I mean, okay. Like I, 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 think he's a, I think he's a great defensive player. Yeah. I think if there was – Three all defensive teams. He basically almost surely makes my third team. Uh-huh. I'd slot him in probably six. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think like the Bucks that deep drop back system does
1: not work without a master pest at the point of attack, funneling ball handlers into the help. Um, you know, into the bramble of arms waiting at the rim. And I think Bledsoe is better than just about anyone at fighting through screens. Pressuring shooters from behind. Um, you know, he, he's really good at those rear view contests and just like being physical at the point of attack, uh, forcing ball handlers like away from the direction of the screen. Um, I think maybe he wasn't quite as good defensively as he was last year when he made first team, but I think he was still elite and he was still vital to what was the league's best defense this year.
0: Again, I don't have any arguments against, you know, his defensive value. I just think, especially when there's already two bucks on, I get their their defense is insane. And it, I guess there's nothing wrong with having three bucks out of 10 here. But I also think it's like if we're acknowledging that Giannis might be the defensive player of the year and we're acknowledging that Brook Lopez is like one of the four best defensive players in the league this season, I just don't know. Like, if you if you took Eric Bledsoe off the Bucks, I don't think their defense gets that much worse. Well, I guess I mean it depends who you replace him with. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe he doesn't get like if quite you, enough. If you, if you put Dante Divincenzo in that spot, I don't think there's a drop off. Uh, okay.
1: I, th- I think that's stretching it for sure. Like I I do think he has the luxury of those incredible rim protectors behind him to where he's able to take a few more chances on the perimeter and to where, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to worry about getting beat off the dribble. Like he's got to be more concerned about just like making pull-up shots difficult and doing his damnness to run guys off of the arc. But I still think just like his ability to get through screens and his ability to stay attached, you know, especially now with like the kind of points of emphasis where you're really getting dinged anytime there's any contact coming around screens and you're grabbing and holding and all that stuff. Like, his ability to stay in contact, I think, is really impressive and really important. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are other guys in the league who can do it close to as well or even as well as him. But I, I definitely think that he deserves credit for that. And also, to your point about whether three bucks should be on the all-defensive team, they weren't just the best defense in the league. Like, they were three points per hundred possessions better than any other defense. And I think I mentioned this last pod, but... Their, their defense relative to league average was third all time. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that three of their guys should make all defensive teams. Who did you have instead? Patrick Beverley. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was my first cut um, in, in, in the guard division. And definitely worthy. I think he was first in defensive real plus minus
0: among guards and by a mile yeah. and i know that's not the be-all end-all mm-hmm. but when the gap is as big as it was between patrick beverly and the number two guy who's chris dunn i think that says something but yeah I, I just think i mean it's not breaking news here patrick Beverly's an absolute hound dog at the point of attack and i know his loud game isn't for everyone and i know you know you got guys like russell westbrook out there saying that like his entire defensive value is completely media driven. Um, <laughs> yeah. But
1: I, I feel like there was like a lot of Beverly backlash this year and maybe, you know, some of that had to do with just his antics and you know, the fact that he can be extremely obnoxious, but I do think also some of it had to do with what Westbrook said about him, which is strange to me because I don't, I'm certainly not taking my cues about who is and isn't a good defensive player from Russell Westbrook.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I said that at the time, too, that, like, Russ, first of all, should not be the one judging guys defensively because <laughs> he's mailed it in on that end far too often, even though, you know, we're in agreement he had a great kind of resurgent year. Again, I, I think it's kind of asinine to believe that Patrick Beverly's defensive value has been completely manufactured by the media or that we're just tricked. By his trash talk, he's like, no man. Watch an NBA game with Patrick Beverly on the court, and I don't care who the opposing guard is that he's going up against. He's going to hound the hell out of that guy. Even if you look at the defensive field goal percentage difference, and you look at guards that defended at least eight shots this year, and then you look at the their that differential number. So Norman Powell actually number one. Opponents shot 6.8 percentage points worse when guarded by Powell. Next would be Gary Harris. Next would be Goran Dragic. And next would be Patrick Beverley. We mentioned the defensive RPM. The metrics are pretty outstanding across the board. And the eye test is as impressive as anyone when we're talking about defensive guards. So I personally can't see a world in which Patrick Beverley wasn't an all defensive guard this year.
1: I mean, that's fair. Again, he was my first cut in the guard group. And I do want to say, though, in regards to that stat about um, you know, comparative field goal percentage, like guys, how they shot versus one defender compared to their average. I think with guards, that's probably not the best stat because I think for the most part, there's going to be a lot of help coming when a guard is taking a shot. And I think it's probably a little bit more of like an accurate indicator stat when it comes to bigs. Um, you know, not that there isn't going to be help, you know, when... Uh, A guy is shooting like out of the post, but I think for the most part, like if it's, if Norman Powell is guarding somebody and gets beat off of the dribble, but that person misses the shot because, you know, the big man stepped up to contest or, you know, somebody slid over from the wing to make the shot a little bit more difficult. I don't know how they measure this stuff, but I feel like maybe, you know, just having watched Norman Powell play defense this year and like, don't get me wrong. He was fine at that on the floor, especially on ball, but I just don't know if that's the best way to measure this sort of thing. But with Beverly, I mean, I think it's warranted. He is he is definitely yeah. an irritant. Um, he uses his hands really effectively to swipe at the ball, uh, cause deflections. And again, like I, I definitely think that he is deserving. And the Clippers' defense kind of fell off a cliff when he wasn't on the floor. Yeah.
0: So. Absolutely. And and even if you look at that stat, I look I agree that Powell's definitely an outlier, but Harris is there, Holliday's there, Simmons is there, Alfred Payton's there, Beverly's there, Fred Van Vliet's there. I think by and large it holds up. And also is it not done by distance?
1: Yeah, I think it's the closest defender, but think about it, like you, you could have, you know, Norman Powell like trailing a play essentially and be the closest defender right. where right. you know but like the, the help, big yeah, man the help. Yeah, exactly. Help. Um, so I don't know. But I'm not going to argue too much over Beverly. Like, I think I have no issue with him being there. He just, um, he just didn't make my team.
0: Okay, so we got one more guard. And this will also decide whether we hit the over <laughs> or not, which um, I feel you've sabotaged. I'm, um, I'm not
1: trying to sabotage anything, man. But uh, So my, my final guard spot actually is the guy that you already mentioned. Uh, and he was a guy who finished second in defensive real plus minus among guards, and that is Chris Dunn. Wow, you know what? That is a good pick, but not your pick. And not mine. Honestly, so Dunn got injured and was it looked like he was gonna be out for the rest of the year, and that probably if the season had continued would have led to him being left off of my list. But the fact that, you know, the season got cut off when it did, meant that he only ended up missing like 13 games, which is on a level with a lot of these other guys on these teams. So I thought it was perfectly reasonable to include him in the mix. I just think for one thing, he's incredibly long and physical at the point of attack. Like he's one of these guards who there are a lot of guards, I feel like in this day and age who do their work. It's not really about like stopping the ball necessarily. Like it's more about helping and digging down uh, and, and, Pursuing and contesting from behind, whereas Dunn, I feel like, is a real, like, enveloping point guard who can actually really like swallow up the ball at the point of attack. Um, and I think he's, you know, essentially on a level with a guy like Bledsoe at getting around screens. And um, the fact that the Bulls, who I really don't think are a very good defensive team outside of Chris Dunn, they had a one hundred three point six defensive rating with him on the floor, which is better than the second-ranked Raptors. And uh, you know, you mentioned second second among guards in defensive real plus minus. Like, his impact metrics were pretty much off the charts at that end of the floor. Yeah. And um, and so I thought that he deserved that last spot.
0: No, look, I, I like that pick. Um, I think he's a great defensive guard. And as you mentioned, he honestly, like, maybe the only reason the Bulls were respectable on that end of the court this year because of what he did at the point of attack. There were points of this season where the Bulls. And when you look at that roster, it's insane. We're top 10 defensively. I think they finished like 12th or 13th or something, which in and of itself is pretty shocking. Right. Because they fell off after he got injured. Right. Um, He was the main reason for their defensive success. All right. I went with an old head and it was Chris Paul. Yeah. I thought anything he lost defensively in the last couple of years, he recaptured this year. I don't know if it was health. I don't know if it was motivated. Like, I, I don't know what it was, but you know, everyone kind of looks at the offensive side when it comes to Chris Paul point guard, and, and how he recaptured that point God title this year. But to me, it was just as much about what he did on the defensive end and just being that like cerebral leader on that end of the court. The Thunder were a surprising defensive team. And I know Chris Paul is not the only reason for that. Um, you know, Shigel, just Alexander made some leaps on that end. We've talked about how Dennis Schroeder had a surprising defensive season. Steven Adams is still an anchor there, but I still think Chris Paul, maybe other than Adams was their most important defensive player. OKC finished 8th in defensive rating and and yeah, you know, I, I can't remember who it was earlier when I was talking about you know the need for defending at the point of attack or among guards in general in this golden era of offensive guard talent and you know Chris Paul is one of the rare guys who can match offensive talent with almost any guard and yet can also bust their ass on the other end and I think he got back to busting ass on that end this year. Got back to playing a lot as well. A ton of games and a ton of minutes again. And, you know, even a guy like Dunn, who I agree should have been in the running, you know, Chris Paul played 12 more games than him, played a lot more minutes than him and a lot more high leverage minutes than him. So, you know, I think if it's going to come down to two guys like that, uh, I'll take Chris Paul every day of the week.
1: I think that, you know, the point about high leverage minutes is well taken. Done. The games he was playing and didn't matter to the same extent that the games that Paul was playing and did. And, uh, you know, you look at crunch time and we talked a lot about Chris Paul and what he did in crunch time this year. Uh, but that applies to both ends of the floor. and. Uh, you know he was asked to do a lot, especially in that three point guard lineup. And um, I, you know, I have no issues with this pick either. So, all
0: right. So, so we went seven for ten. That's pretty good, still. After going seven for seven, we. You want up. to quickly talk about some snubs? Yeah, I'll I'll just name a couple. For me, it was Bam Adebayo and Pascal Siakam.
1: Um, yeah, I had both of them. Uh, I had Bam. Uh, so I, I broke it down by position at center. Yep. I had Bam, Embiid. I think if Embiid had played more games, uh, it would he would have made it a little yeah. bit tougher uh, yeah. to choose between him and Gobert and, and Embiid uh, and and uh, Locas, sorry. Um, I thought Mark Gasol also, like if he had played yeah. more games, would have been in the mix. Like he was just 100%. so tremendous at that end when he was healthy.
0: Dude, there um, was a point in like the first month-ish of the season where I legitimately thought Gasol might work himself into the Defensive Player of the Year. Conversation.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things working against him. One is that uh, that he just didn't play all that much, right? And the other is that like the Raptors just continued to maintain an elite right. defense when he was out, um, and that that shouldn't diminish what he did when he was healthy. And actually, like his on-off split was the biggest on the Raptors. Like the, he was you know the biggest driver of winning by yeah. by on-off stats. So uh, I, I still do think that he deserves a lot of credit, but ultimately he only played basically half of the season. Um, but ju- just even still like given like his declining physical skill set like he's able to make up for so much with his intelligence at that end yeah. and like as a communicator and an anchor, like he makes so much stuff work in front of him um, by just sort of quarterback in the back line. Uh, so I thought he had a case. Miles Turner I think fell off a little bit from last year but still like probably the biggest reason that the Pacers managed to be top 10 in defensive efficiency. And obviously, you know, by far their best rim protector and one of the best rim protectors in the league. Even if he's not the most versatile defender, like he can switch a bit. Um, But as an interior defender, he continued to be great. And then Daniel Tice, who I thought, you know, like I mentioned before, had a really underrated defensive season. And uh, the Celtics didn't have a ton of size. Um, You know, his backup was Ennis Cantor or sometimes Robert Williams. Like they relied heavily on Tice to be uh, a deterrent on the back end. And I think he did that better than anybody could have expected this year.
0: Yeah. I've, I've got no arguments with any of those snubs. Still trying to wrap my head around the fact that we went seven for 10 and started seven for seven. Yeah. <laughs> those uh, yeah. We, we,
1: we blew a, a seven, nothing lead. Yeah. Um, I started
0: by saying, I wish we would have put something on this. And in hindsight, I'm glad we didn't.
1: And then guards I had. So Beverly was my toughest snub, um, but also drew holiday who, you know, just continues yeah. to be a masterful, multi-positional defender. And Garrett, also,
0: I feel like he was coming on as the season went on. Like, I, I didn't think he had the best start, but he was coming on as the season went on on both sides of the court. Yeah, I agree. And, like,
1: the Pelicans were generally really disappointing defensively. And I feel like, even though in my mind, like, no, that that wasn't Holiday's fault, the fact that he couldn't help raise them to any, like, even close to average – I felt like yeah. I had to, had to camp as a knock against him, even though like there's sort of only so much that a guard can do uh, when the front court defenders behind him are underwhelming. And um, I mean, with, with Derek Favors on the floor, they were actually pretty decent defensively. So he was definitely in the mix. Gary Harris, I thought had a great defensive season, even as his offensive game continues to just completely fall apart inexplicably. Yeah, um, Kyle Lowry, who is another one of these guys who I just, you know, feel kind of outraged has never made an all defensive team. And I Kyle thought,
0: Lowry was my base essentially my top snub from the guard. Yeah. Like he would have been my fifth guard.
1: He was really important to, to making that defense work as well. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Chris Paul, I had, Fred Van Vliet, uh, Josh Richardson, DeJounte Murray, uh, Danny Green, and Dylan Brooks. All those guys I thought at the guard spots were really good defensively this year. Um, but the for the forward is where I feel like I had the most snubs uh, and the ones that were the toughest to omit
0: it's really it's so difficult to make an all-defensive team for a lot of reasons um one it's the most exclusive of the nba's award teams you know like the all-star game you get 24 guys plus injury replacements all nba teams you get 15 all defensive teams there's only 10 spots and the skill that it's evaluating is one that quite frankly a lot of the media voting on it don't seem to have a grasp on So you know, whether it's guys just kind of voting by reputation mm-hmm. or you know guys voting for you know players that they see a lot you get that with a lot of awards but especially with the all-defensive teams because i just find that people aren't necessarily watching the game at a deep enough level to necessarily differentiate between defenders and so I think it's hard, unless you're one of the guys that's accepted, widely accepted as a defensive star, it's really hard to crack uh, an NBA All-Defensive team. And it's a little confounding that a guy like Tucker and even a guy like Lowry, who for the most part are both seen as defensive stars, never got that honor um, and and honestly might never get it. But yeah, I I just think it kind of goes to show you how exclusive the All-Defensive team is and and how tough to crack it it is.
1: I think that also has a lot to do with the fact that there just aren't really great stats that can measure defensive impact. And so if you're a voter who like hasn't watched uh, a ton of like out of market games, there's not really something that you can turn to like a stat that's going to illuminate this for you. It really is like so much of it does come down to the eye test. And that's where I think you get a lot of these reputational votes. Um, Because, you know, they just don't entirely know where else to go with it. Um, And like, I mean, like Kobe is a great example. I feel like he was coasting on reputation for so long toward the tail end of his career. Like made so many all defensive teams in in his last few years when I I think he'd really fallen off at that end of the floor. Uh, Like Kawhi making second team last year, I even think is a pretty good example of that. Because I don't even think he was the best defender on the
0: Raptors last year. Kobe was kind of like the like remember when Derek Jeter kept winning gold gloves (laughs) yeah
1: yeah um but I think it's more inexcusable in baseball although maybe back then when Jeter was winning all those gold gloves the the metrics weren't as widespread and advanced but like there are good I think defensive impact stats in baseball um compared to basketball so I think that makes it tricky uh but again the, the forward spot was just absolutely stacked this year and like I felt bad leaving Kawhi off. Robert Covington, I thought, had an incredible defensive season and like was arguably as important as Tucker was once he came over to making the small ball work. And like his block rate absolutely skyrocketed once he started playing, uh, you know, a lot of center and and power forward pretty much full time. Paul Millsap, I don't feel like ever gets nearly enough credit. For Agreed. some for, of the best
0: hands for a big man I've ever seen on the defensive end,
1: yeah, and also just like really, really smart and makes so many rotations, uh, that paper over some of Denver's defensive weaknesses. And like slotting him alongside Jokic, I think, uh, covers up for a lot of Jokic's deficiencies. And like the two of them together can actually anchor a pretty good defensive team. Like the Nuggets, they slipped out of the top 10 toward the tail end of the season, but they were top 10 for most of the year. And I think Millsap was probably the biggest driver of that. And I think he's just been underrated. Pretty much his entire Nuggets tenure uh, hasn't really been appreciated for what he has done at that end. I think Jonathan Isaac, if he hadn't gotten injured, would undoubtedly have made one of these teams. Like when he was healthy, he was just an absolute monster at that end. Um, oh. But but ultimately, I don't think he played enough games. But like he, for what he did, like his contributions when he was healthy, he was absolutely one of the, the best defensive players in the in the league uh and yeah i uh, and think siakam like you
0: mentioned as well yeah i think out of all the guys you mentioned the one for me that really had he been healthy would have been in that mix would have been isaac um but you know unfortunately there's only two of these teams and not six of them because we we probably could have filled out four or five yeah I, and i think like we didn't even
1: mention um like matisse Thiebel. i thought was yeah actually- i
0: thought of Thiebel as well i mean he'll he'll be on an all defensive team within like two years
1: yeah Um, But he was actually he was that good as a rookie where like in another season, he he very well could have made one of these two teams like he was so unbelievably good. Um, Tatum and Brown, both of those guys on the Celtics were great. Um, Honestly, LeBron James, fourth in the whole league, defensive real plus minus.
0: Yeah, I had LeBron in my snubs.
1: Porzingis, also like some of the best rim protecting numbers in the league. And probably the biggest reason the Mavericks were like an average defensive team this year. And Jimmy Butler as well, who I think fell off a little bit from his absolute heyday, but was still a really impactful defender. Yeah.
0: And again, just like think of how many guys you just rattled off right there as snubs, you know, and there's like four guys ahead of all of them just as snubs. It's tough, man. It's tough to crack these teams. It is. And it's also funny just because
1: like so much of the talk about today's league is focused on offense. And like scoring has just gone totally haywire like defenses can't keep up you know people debating whether it's good for the league that like you know it's all about offense you'll have old heads saying nobody plays defense anymore which I obviously think is ridiculous and then we get down to it and it's like really difficult to single out the 10 best defenders in the league and and certain guys who it's really difficult to leave off
0: yeah old heads say that because you can't like, okay, sure. 30 years ago, you could straight up uppercut someone as they <laughs> barreled down the lane and it would just count as a steal. And now, like, defenses are actually more complex than ever in terms of actual basketball strategy. Like, these old heads that think no defense is played just think that because 30 years ago, defense was so simple. It was practically just stay in front of your man and if you can't punch him. Like, <laughs> you know, sorry that that's not how defense is played in the modern NBA.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just think it's like that's why I actually really enjoy this exercise, just because I feel like it's important important to point out in in the midst of all this talk about how offense is running rampant, that there is still like a ton of incredible defensive play in the NBA, and in a lot of ways, it can be just as fun to watch as offenses.
0: Agreed, man. All right, well, I think that does it for another uh, at home edition of Pound the Rock. Yeah, man. We uh, we press on. We do well. We made it, and. Hopefully we'll make it to another one next week when we will reverse roles and Joe Wolfon will take over hosting duties and we will come up with something else to talk about from the loneliness of our solitary microphones until then enjoy episodes three and four, I guess of the last dance this weekend It's the only basketball we have and uh, yeah, keep on keeping on, man. Talk to you soon, buddy. You too. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joe Scacharo. Pound the rock.